Studio. I'm Max Reaper, editor of Royals Review. Joining me as usual is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, how are you doing? Do you have your uh, Taylor Swift tickets yet? Uh, we do. We sure do. I uh, paid way more for them than I, <laughs> I thought, but way less than I would in four months when the only ones available are scalp tickets. Well, yeah, I saw like there's a tweet about uh, tickets going for resale for like twenty thousand dollars now. And I was like, forget about crypto, man. This is uh, that's the asset to invest in is Taylor Swift tickets because, uh, yeah, they're very much in demand right now. Apparently, uh, also joining us uh, from a Royals Farm Report is Alex Duvall. Alex, uh, I, I don't know what you're. Are you going to the Taylor Swift concert? Not a chance. Nope. <laughs> uh, just not a fan of Taylor Swift, or uh, no, not willing to pay the money. I just no. I have a out of principle. I would never pay that much. I just I don't know if I could make myself do it. So I am excited for those who got tickets because I was trying to buy tickets to a different concert earlier today, and I waited for almost two hours to get in line to buy tickets for me and two buddies. And then they were like, "Congrats! There is exactly one ticket available." So it's 2022 how can we not figure this out better uh that's crazy um do you mind if i ask what what concert it is uh tyler childers is gonna be at starlight in june so cool that's what i was looking forward to until they were like yeah no (laughs) yeah well uh yeah i'm sure it'll be a good time i mean in my household uh we're not taylor swift fans but my wife did she did purchase plane tickets and flew to la just to see BTS in concert at SoFi Stadium, so that's that's kind of where we stand on the concert. That's like I was trying to think of like what's the most we've ever spent on uh, concerts, and that's probably the most. I didn't go to that one. She she did it with her friends. I think the most I've ever spent on tickets is probably a sporting event, not a concert. But um, yeah, so it, it, everyone's got their own thing. I don't. That's 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 great. I, I'm sure people have a great time at the Taylor Swift concert. Matthew, I'm sure you have a great time. I, I'm sure she puts on a great show. But uh, man, that's a lot of money. <laughs> A lot of waiting for uh, for tickets. Uh, one one place where there's not a lot of waiting for tickets is Kauffman uh, Stadium, and later on, of course, we'll talk about the Royals' efforts to uh, to move downtown. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about the off-season simulation we do every year with uh, 30 fans. But first of all, I did want to get to actual news from the team. Uh, the Royals starting to, starting the off-season with some transactions, and they started off with perhaps a transaction that fans did not want to hear. The Royals are re-signing first baseman Ryan O'Hearn to a one-year deal worth $1.4 million, avoiding arbitration. Uh, he was arbitration eligible. Uh, they could have non-tendered him, cut him loose, but instead they bring him back. He hit two thirty-nine last year with one home run in 145 plate appearances. Matthew, make this make sense to me. This is probably going to be the very shortest response that I've ever had, which is, I I, I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know. If you were to put a gun to my head and said, and say, give un, an answer, I think that the Royals would probably say something along the lines of, he performed pretty well. When there was no shift, this next year is going to be different, which is true from the last couple of, year, the last couple of years where um, there's not going to be a shift. Um, so I wonder if the Royals see him as a kind of low uh low cost like roll of the dice i guess if he can recapture some of his like rookie form um by performing better with against no shift that's it that's the only answer i have i have no other things no other answers um or <laughs> i'm just I'm, I'm confused 
Well, it's just weird out of the gate because if it was Dayton Moore still in charge, I think you would say, okay, he's attached to Ryan O'Hearn as a person. And Ryan O'Hearn seems like a good dude, like by all accounts. And I think Alex expressed this as well. Like, I just feel kind of bad for the guy at this point because it's not, I mean, it's his fault that he's not hitting better, I guess, but it's not really his fault that the Royals keep bringing him back, right? I wouldn't turn down a $1.4 million to play for a big league team. Uh, And, you know, it's not like cutting him is what's going to make the team better. But at the same time, he's kind of become like the poster poster child for like being too attached to players. Him and Hunter Dozier, I think. And it seems like one way the new guy in charge, J.J. Piccolo, could kind of get off on the right foot is kind of cutting ties with Ryan Hearn saying, okay, this is a new era. We're not going to be too attached to guys. Um, so what, what do you think was behind keeping Ryan Hearn for another year? If I could look at this objectively, and, and I almost wrote about this last summer because I was kind of like, you know, it's it's interesting, is Ryan O'Hearn, among Royals players with at least 100 plate appearances, had the second best hard hit rate on the team and the lowest soft hit rate on the team. When he's going well and he's actually making contact, he hits the ball pretty hard. And I was reading Craig Brown's newsletter, Into the Fountains, uh, earlier this morning and he talked about the shift and he was talking about all the ground balls O'Hearn hits and I was reading it and I and I and I talked to Craig periodically. I did not say anything to him about this. So one thing that I that I was looking at it, I was like, wait a minute. Like I don't care that they're banning the shift. I don't want Ryan O'Hearn hitting ground balls. And even if it helps him a little bit, if Ryan O'Hearn goes from hitting what did he hit, two seventeen to two thirty seven it's still not worth keeping him around because and Craig put his batted ball, his spray chart up on his post. And I'm like, Oh Craig, you almost had it. But if you look at it, Ryan O'Hearn is not able to lift the ball in the air. He does hit the ball hard and he goes the other way really well. But Ryan O'Hearn's fly ball rate was 27 and Ryan O'Hearn only pulled the ball 42% of the time, which is also not good. Ryan O'Hearn's profile, the type of hitter that Ryan O'Hearn needs to be, hit the ball in the air to your pull side as frequently as possible. And because of that, the shift for me just isn't going to make that much of a difference if he's not hitting home runs to his pull side. Hit it over the shift, right? So... I don't know. I, I, I look at that a couple different ways in that, yes, could the banning of the shift help him a little bit? Sure, but not in the way that I think a lot of people think because Ryan O'Hearn, like going the other way is not good for Ryan O'Hearn. Going the other way is great for Nicky Lopez. It's great for Andrew Benintendi, but Ryan O'Hearn needs to be lifting the ball in the air, and he doesn't do it nearly enough. Yeah, and, and you know, banning the shift, like you can't have a shortstop over on the right side but you can still shift your second baseman and first baseman to pull, and that's what he does a lot. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I, and I agree with you. Like, the ground ball rate, obviously, that's going to be a big issue, shift or no shift. And, look, even if he improves his numbers, like, how does he fit on this roster? Um, you know, obviously, Nick Prado's at first base. Vinny Pascantino is going to be your DH most of the time, and when he's not, it's going to be Salvador Perez, maybe MJ Melendez a little bit. Um, he's a, you know, he found a little bit of a niche as a pinch hitter, I suppose there's some value in that, but um, to, to, for a guy with as limited defensive value as, as O'Hearn has, for a team that wants to get a little more right-handed heavy, 
it just doesn't make much sense and to pay 1.4 million for it when you could probably get a guy replacement level value you know for league minimum or at least some veteran for a million dollars um yeah it just doesn't really make sense to me so i i don't get it i i i'm i guess i'm a little uh, i'm not totally like out on jj piccolo or anything like that and maybe there's something they see in the data that's like okay we'll make this tweak that'll unlock some more value i i mean if that was true though why did that why have they not done it yet i mean it was dayton Moore really saying no don't don't fix rhino her and swing uh it just it doesn't really make any sense and so i yeah i'm, I'm just as befuddled i think as you guys and, and a lot of the fan bases about why they brought him back and again it's not in the grand scheme of things not that big of a deal but it just kind of i think is a has become like symbolic of like the royals hanging on to guys too long that have seemingly no value to this team and uh doesn't really get the, the offseason off to a good start when this is kind of an offseason the royals they had built up some goodwill and they they kind of need to win this offseason with um some of the other things they're trying to do uh and where they've been in the standings so certainly it's certainly not a good way to get this offseason started no and can we can we sorry i don't mean to like jump into your guys podcast and take over here for a second <laughs> no but please can we talk can we talk about the fact that they mentioned his new contract while they were tweeting about the 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 rule five protections it was almost like they were flipping the middle finger to everybody reading it like hey you all came to see who we're protecting on the on the Rule 5 draft. Guess what? Here's a big F you because we're keeping Ryan O'Hearn around too. Like it was almost irony. It was almost like whoever's running the Twitter account was like, ha-ha, watch this one, boys. Like there's no way on earth they were like, this is going to be appropriate. We'll add this into this tweet. There's no way. There's no way they didn't do that on purpose. I won't believe it, <laughs> and which makes the whole thing even funnier. Well, I think it was kind of like a Friday news dump, except it was on a Tuesday <laughs> where they, they're like, okay, look, some people are going to be upset about the downtown baseball announcement, which I'll get to in a little bit. And also probably people will be a little bit upset about the 40-man roster decision. So let's just get it all out in one big swoop with the Ryan or, uh, underneath the Ryan O'Hearn news because that's what people will be really upset about, and we'll just kind of get it all out. Uh, they, you know, they probably should have traded Salvi and, and – Scott Barlow and Brady Singer while they're at it because that, that, that was going to be all the all the bad news all at once and uh, you know in one big dump. Well, let, let's talk about those forty man roster decisions. Uh, the Royals added. You know, it was, Wednesday was the deadline to add players to the forty man roster to protect them th- from the Rule Five draft. The Royals honestly didn't have too many names where they really needed to add them. A couple, couple some border, interesting borderline cases, I think, and certainly I think a lot of guys on the forty man roster they probably could have dropped. What they ultimately ended up doing was adding catcher Freddie Fermin, pitcher Alec Marsh, and outfielder Diego Hernandez to the 40-man roster. That joins uh, Samad Taylor, second baseman, and pitcher Richard Loveletti, who they added last week. Uh, Making room, uh, they designated for assignment pitcher Jake Brents, who had Tommy John surgery this this summer, uh, and I think they expect to bring him back on a minor league deal, kind of like what they did with Loveletti. Uh, they also designated for assignment outfielder Brent Rooker, the outfielder they got from the Padres for Cam Gallagher, and pitcher Nathan Webb, a, a minor leaguer who had uh, kind of struggled with some control issues uh, this year. Uh, Alex, we'll start with you. Is there any any surprises and uh, and those additions to the forty man roster and who they were uh, willing to cut loose? Yeah, I'm surprised they cut Webb loose just because of his connections in the organization. Um, 
not that his performance necessarily dictated it this past year, but I will say in 2021, he was one of the most dominant minor league pitchers I'd ever seen one inning at a time in that high A championship run. It was one of the most incredible runs I'd ever seen a minor leaguer have, period. And it was kind of like at the end of that year, it was like, wow. Like, if he builds on this at all, like, he's going to be really good. So, not that I'm surprised because of 2022, but back in 2021, I had high hopes for him. And like I said, he's he worked on the grounds crew. So, there's like this, you know, story behind it that's whatever. But the one that they didn't protect that really got me was Anthony Veneciano. And maybe I'm just identifying, you know, players that are that are valuable differently than I should be because the Rangers didn't protect Antoine Kelly either, who is like Anthony Veneciano on steroids. Um, so the similar types of pitcher, they both go unprotected. So maybe there's a theme here. But Anthony Veneciano in 2021 – Six five lefty popping a hundred miles an hour. They just they don't exist. They're unicorns, and if you have a unicorn, you don't let it go. Even if it's not you know ready to flourish just yet, you gotta you gotta keep that under under lock and key, and just see. Especially if your plan is to bring in a new you know pitching development system and see if you can revamp some of these guys. I just don't know how if you have a six five lefty that can throw like he throws how you keep a Colin Snyder and Anthony Masevich or Ryan O'Hearn and some of these other guys on the 40 man roster. It's just, to me, it's just bad scouting. It's just bad process. But I mean, the Royals in fairness have been pretty good about not losing players to the 40, to the rule five draft. So I try to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I remind people all the time that, you know, they obviously know better than I do, but looking at it, from 30,000 feet, it just looks like bad process. And I can't make myself understand why you would let a guy like that go, potentially. Uh, but, you know, the new regime and, and whether or not they're going to do things differently is is kind of up in the air right now with a move like that. He had, 2021, he had 127 strikeouts in 93 and two-thirds innings, uh, 3.75 ERA. Of course, he was a 23-year-old in in uh, high A, which is about, I guess, right. Uh, but this year, really, really regressed uh, in double A. 129 strikeouts, 122 innings, but a 5.72 ERA. Had a lot of walk issues, uh, and he's 25 years old now. So that, yeah, I, I, I would probably protect a guy like that, especially in a thin system like the Royals, where, as you say, like, is he more uh, likely to be good in the future than Anthony Mishavich? Yeah, probably. Um, you know, there's there's some detritus on the roster they could probably get rid of. Uh, I was more surprised they did not protect TJ Sikama, uh, the former first-round pick who they got from the Yankees. Now, again, that could be a calculation that he's not going to get selected. But, uh, you know, he's a guy that had some injury setbacks. And, uh, you know, I feel like he could probably, once he, if he's proven he's healthy, like – kind of skyrocket pretty quickly and, and, and maybe even, you know, prove he's ready to be jumping to a big league bullpen right away. Uh, so it, it would kind of wouldn't surprise me if he does get selected. But like you said, the Royals have been pretty good about, you know, not getting guys selected. Some of that's been because they don't have a very uh, uh, deep system. But um, uh, some, some of that also has to be some of their calculations as well. Other names left unprotected, uh, pitchers Drew Parrish. And Austin Cox both had kind of uh, lackluster years. Outfielders Brewer Hicklin and John Rave. 
outfielders tend not to get selected as much unless they have like a plus skill like power or speed. Hicklin and Rave, both good hitters, I think, um, but uh, I don't know if their odds of getting selected are that high. Uh, Matthew, did you have any uh, reactions to kind of some of the roster moves they made this year or the roster moves they didn't make? I think, well, my 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 take on the forty man is a little bit more defeatist than than most people's. Um, the the thing about the Royals and the that you have to think about is that the Royals forty man roster um, and overall minor league uh, depth right now just isn't very good. So the thing that you have to really think is that most teams have a kind of similar pitcher to like a like a Sycamore type of guy. Like most teams have those those players, right? Um, there are some players like Alex was talking about that are really interesting for you know certain velocity and size and you know reasons like you know lefty throwing hundred like okay yeah, but teams tend to have these kind of marginal prospects that Royals fans um, who have sat through a lot of bad teams and always look towards the the minors with an understandably rosy viewpoint just to try to get some hope that that my just my thing is that most teams have these types of players available. I'm not that worried about the Royals because their depth of talent just isn't that much. I am, in fact, intrigued at the Rule 5 possibilities because there are other organizations going through roster crunches. The Tampa Bay Rays are a big one where they have to add a bunch of people to the to the 40-man uh, you know, their 40-man roster. They are those are the teams that you you really need. Uh, to consider poaching. Uh, I don't think teams are really thinking about poaching players from the Royals when there are other better prospects available on other teams. Um, so that's kind of what you have to think about in terms of 40-man roster. Um, and the other thing about the 40-man roster in Rule 5 uh, thing is that there are usually enough um, you know, roadblocks for teams to draft guys who are in maybe like high A or double A. It just doesn't happen that often. It happens with pitchers more often than it happens, you know, with hitters. So um, a guy like Sikima, you know, he could be a guy that when healthy pitches in the big league bullpen and you can kind of stash him there with the 26 man roster. So like, you know, that's not a question, right? But uh, you just got to think of it in context of the rest of the teams in baseball, and the Royals do have some good prospects. They just don't have as many and as deep of a prospect pool as a lot of other teams uh, do, combined with the fact that other teams have to deal with a very full 40-man roster at the big league level because they're much closer to winning, right? Where the Royals don't really have that, they can put players on the 40-man roster if they need to. So a lot of their guys that you would consider protecting are already on the 40-man roster, and in some cases have already, you know, played for the big leagues. So um, they're, they're kind of in a lull right now. I would imagine that their, their farm system gets built up over the next couple of years. Um, if, you know, the new management is doing its job correctly, right? Um, we're kind of in a lull right now too. So it, it you know, the Royals, they might have someone selected, but um, as we've seen from the Royals picking rule five uh, picks from other teams, Sometimes you get a diamond in the rough, but a lot of times, you know, they're Rule 5 available for a reason. Just reacting to some of the moves they made uh, on my part. Samad Taylor, I think, makes sense. Uh, he was injured second half after they acquired him from Toronto, so they didn't really get a chance to see what he could do. He played in the Arizona Fall League, uh, and I heard some good reports out of what he's done there, and he's kind of intriguing. I think he could actually make the team next year. He's kind of an intriguing utility guy who could bring some speed. Richard Lovelady, interesting. I, I mean, I've always been a Lovelady fan. Obviously, he's coming off Tommy John surgery, uh, pitched a little bit at the end of the year. 
I it seems like they're doing him a solid a little bit. Like you know, hey, thanks for not leaving us uh, when we DFA'd you last year. Uh, we'll put you back on the roster because I don't think I don't think ordinarily you would put a guy a minor leaguer coming off Tommy John surgery with no track record in the big leagues uh, like Lovelady, but um, I do like his potential, so I don't I don't have a problem with that. Diego Hernandez is someone I kind of overlooked when I wrote about this. I didn't I guess I didn't really realize he was uh, Rule Five eligible, but he's a very intriguing kind of uh, speedy, uh, has a little bit of power, at least uh, non negligible power. Uh, and is very young for I think what Double A was what he got to this year, uh, so he's he's really kind of interesting. I, I I think he'd definitely be a guy that would be selected if he was unprotected. Alec Marsh I've liked, um, but uh, really struggled this year. But I think it makes sense to protect him. But <laughs> the one that really baffled me was Freddie Fermin, twenty uh, seven year old catcher. He has it well in the upper minors. I'll give him that, and maybe that's what they're looking at. I don't know what his defense is like. I'm I'm sure it's probably pretty good. Um, and I know some of this is because they they want a third catcher. They DFA'd Sebastian Rivero, who, um, I mean, hadn't really developed offensively, but was a pretty good glove behind the plate. Um, so I think there's like a thought of like, oh no, we need a third catcher on our roster, but I, I, do you need to add it right now at the expense of protecting some of these other guys? I don't know. I mean, he's, you know, if you don't have a third catcher and it's March, there are guys available, you know, through trades or releases, or fr- there's probably some free agents, you know, still available. Like there are ways to get a third catcher on the roster that you don't need to give the spot to Fermin right now. But you know, again, not one, not a big deal. But I that, that was a head scratcher to me, especially with a guy like Sikama unprotected or Ven- Veneziano. Um, you know, I probably would have kept one of those, you know, higher upside arms rather than a 27 year old catcher, but. Uh, that's just me. Uh, so uh, we'll see. I don't, Alex, I don't know if you had a chance to look at some of the names uh, of guys unprotected. I know you mentioned Antoine Kelly of the Rangers. Um, I mean, the Royals, ha- it's, it seems likely they would take someone in the Rule 5 draft just to get some talent in the organization. It seems like J.J. Piccolo, I think, is maybe a little more uh, uh, willing to kind of poach talent where he can. Um, are there any names? Are there any other names that stand out to you? Maybe a profile of something you're looking for that the Royals might be interested in in the Rule Five Draft this year? Yeah, I haven't had a chance to look into it too much. I think there was another name that I mentioned that at the off the top of my head, I can't remember who it would have been on Twitter. Um, but there were a few pitchers that I noticed that were kind of being yeah, left open. And again, the, the thing that I quiz can help you find is, the right bed like, for I you. I watch a guy like Antoine Kelly pitch, and I don't care how many strikes he throws. You watch that kid pitch, I'm not letting anyone get close to him. Now, Milwaukee just traded him. Texas is leaving him off of their roster. So maybe there's, you know, there's, there's a clear issue here between what I'm seeing in Antoine Kelly and what everybody else is seeing in Antoine Kelly. So, so it's probably me, but I'm, I watch Antoine Kelly pitch. I don't understand why you would ever let somebody have a free go at him for, for any reason. There is nothing about Antoine Kelly that is repeatable. I mean, you're talking about a guy like Veneciano, who's a 6'5 lefty, but I think Kelly's even like 6'7, throws from a really funky arm slot and is consistently 96, 97. I mean, there are literally probably three other guys like this at the big league level, maybe. I mean, you're talking about like Andrew Miller used to be this profile, Garrett Crochet. There's just not a lot of them. And so I'm not saying 
Antoine Kelly is that talented, maybe he's never good. I mean, it's it's quite frankly possible because I don't think Milwaukee probably trades him for Matt Bush if he was going to be that good. I just don't understand how teams, and again, this probably sounds dumb to say out loud, but I don't understand how teams can't get more out of a guy like that. So whatever, we'll see. Now that the Royals are the team to call when you're trying to get the most out of a pitcher, but Antoine Kelly out of Texas is the number one target on my board by a wide margin at the moment. Uh, according to MLB, MLB Pipeline, they have, oh, is that right, 100 top 30 prospects that are eligible for the Rule 5 draft that are unprotected? Or maybe they, I don't know if all of them are eligible. Let's see, 100. Yeah, 100 players. So there's, there's some talent out there. Uh, now, obviously, if you're a top 30 guy, it doesn't mean you're major league ready or, you know, that you're even that good. But, you know, looking at, like, the Dodgers' number eight prospect, outfielder Jose Ramos is available. I mean, you're obviously going to look at the, the deep organizations. Astros' number 12 prospect, Jaden Murray, a pitcher, uh, is also available. Uh, Twins' number eight prospect, outfielder Misael Urbina. Now, again, some of these guys are, are a long way from the big leagues, and perhaps teams are gambling. They're not going to get selected. Uh, oh, Phillies pitcher Eric Miller, I think, is a name I've heard. Uh, a couple of people mentioned as, well, as a, possibly a top guy selected. So I think there are going to be some talented players out there, and, and, and I do think the Royals should take that opportunity to add some talent to the minor league uh, system. Uh, and we'll see. The, the Rule 5 draft will be uh, at the winter meetings in the first week of December, so we'll have to see if the Royals end up making a move then. Uh, let's. I did want to turn to, to uh, the, the bigger news, I guess, uh, if, with the Royals this week, and that is it looks like they're going to move downtown. Uh, owner John Sherman wrote penned a letter this week uh, indicating that uh, a couple things that they they looked into renovating the K, and according to them, to do what they want to do, which is a ballpark district, it would cost about as much to uh, renovate the K than it would to build new downtown. Now you can be a little skeptical of that that claim, um, but they said they want to make a, a ballpark district that would cost um, a total cost of two billion dollars. That would include restaurants, hotels, housing, um, as far as far as well as infrastructure upgrades. Um, no timeline, no no indication of how it would be paid for. Although he did say that Jackson County taxpayers would not be asked to pay more than what they're paying now, which to me says that's probably going to be something like an extension of the sales tax that is paying for the renovations that they did uh, over a decade ago, as well as some sort of tax increment financing where they you know, have bonds and the, the taxes raised from the ballpark district itself will pay back the bonds over 30 years or whatever. So a uh, pretty polarizing topic among Royals fans, Matthew. Uh, so let's, let's get you on the, uh, on the, uh, which side are you on? Are you, uh, for downtown baseball, against downtown baseball, or are you kind of waiting to see uh, what they come up with as far as a plan? Well, I'm I'm glad that the decision is not really in my hands because um, I so I really like Kauffman Stadium. I think it's an iconic stadium. I really like it. Um, it's it's a cool stadium. It offers a lot. Um, so I like Kauffman Stadium a lot. I hate the Truman Sporks complex. Um, it's just a sea of cars in the middle of nowhere. It's like a terrible experience if you're not, um, you know, uh, making food and having fun and tailgating before the game. If you're not doing that, it's just a terrible experience. And the thing is, like, as everyone knows who went to games in like 14, 15, 16 when the Royals were really good and when it was sold out, it's 
very it's it's impossible to get into the into there and out of there in any reasonable amount of time because there's no other alternatives but dr- than driving. So Truman Sports Complex is a, is a mess. I don't like it. Kauffman Stadium, I love it. Um, alternatively, the thing about downtown baseball is that people complain. The, a lot of the reasons why people complain about downtown baseball, they simply don't know where they're part. They're talking about right. It's more convenient. Downtown can hold a ridiculous amount of people, and it's designed to hold a huge amount of cars and people in flux every single day for work. Um, there's a lot of options. You can walk. You can take public transport. You can drive there. You can stay at a hotel and walk. Like there's a huge amount of options. There's way more local food. Like as a location downtown. Um, is much, 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 much better. Um, and a lot of the criticisms of downtown just don't really, like if you if you look at them, they just don't really make sense. Um, or it's just people who are unfamiliar with downtown, which I, which I understand, right? I understand if you're unfamiliar with downtown, but really, like if you try it out, like it's, I've been to multiple downtown ballparks. It's, it's, it's not difficult. It, it really isn't. And once you've done it like a time or two, I think you'll find that it's a plenty easy thing to do um and anybody who's ever been to a concert um at the sprint center t-mobile center like kind of a similar deal you know it's it's pretty easy to get into and out of downtown from there even when there are a lot of people so that that's my take on it so i like downtown as an area way better but i also really like kaufman stadium so um you know what'll, what'll hap- what happens happens but um I, I'm kind of split on it. If you know, if you could just like pick up Kaufman Stadium and just dump it downtown, like I think that would be ideal. But there's not there's not space for it, and we can't do that anyway. So um, you you have to sort of choose. And it seems that the Royals are choosing downtown, which I'm okay with, um, independent of all the finance things, which is an entire additional discussion. Um, but you know, I I. I I am going to miss Kauffman Stadium uh, if and when they leave, they leave, that's for sure. Yeah, I think we could have a whole episode about downtown baseball and kind of its pros and cons, uh, ins and outs. It's different sites. They still don't have a site picked out. I think there's been a couple mentioned. East Village uh, and the East Loop seems like the most likely scenario, although it's, it's nothing been, nothing's been confirmed. And the Royals said they're going to have kind of a listening tour where they get input from various t- stakeholders and, and the public. Alex, if you're the owner of the Royals, what are you doing with with the future of the Royals and where they play? Uh, if I was the owner, I'm going downtown, and I think that's that's obviously why they are right. I think it's it is by far the thing that makes the most sense for the future of the organization. It is the way to make money, and we've seen it with the Atlanta Braves. And I think one thing that people maybe don't account for is that the Royals and by the way, they can they can parade around and act like they don't know where they're going. I won't say for sure that I know where they're going, but I'm 99.9% sure I know where they're going, and I'm 100% sure they know where they're going because I'm pretty sure the ownership group already owns the land around where they're going to put the stadium. And here's the thing with it is the Royals and what the Braves did. You're not just building a, a downtown stadium. You're developing shops and apartments and hotels and bars and entertainment and they're going to own all of it or at least they're going to get a cut of all of it so they're not just getting max reapers money for tickets and jerseys and beer and hot dogs excuse me they're going to get your money for beer before the game for the nachos you eat before the game for the the golf simulator you go in for the pickleball you play and they're going to the apartment you're staying in the hotel you're staying in and all of that money is going to go to the Royals, but the only money they have to report and, and theoretically use 
as a, you know, their income is what they make from the team themselves. And I think that was like the big debate about what the Braves are doing, right? Is how much money are they making through the, through the baseball? And then how much money are they making on the entertainment around the new stadium? So that's what the Royals ought to do financially speaking. That's what they're going to do is build a small city, a baseball village right there in the East village, I think. And I think, I think that makes sense. And and by the way, if they're if that means they're going to bump the payroll to 125 million dollars at a minimum all the time, like a lot of other teams do by 2028, okay, then I'm in. Like I like I get it. As long as that money that you're going to make from the surrounding area is going to be used on the team, then it's just a matter of do we think they're going to use that money on the team or not? And I think that's you know yet to be determined, but as a as a member as a citizen of blue springs missouri there is nothing more convenient than kaufman stadium it is outstanding on a random tuesday night in june like it is it is it is the the best i shouldn't say the best it is the easiest experience you could ask for from a major professional sport just in terms of like i can leave my house in blue springs at 6 45 without a ticket and be in my seat by the first pitch at 710. So, um, you know, I'll miss that aspect of it, but I totally understand why they're leaving. Well, yeah, it's interesting. You make a good point about the revenue part, and, and also they get the revenue not only when you do that before the game, but they also get that revenue in November and December when there are no games and you're just going to a restaurant in that ballpark village. And and like you said, you, you talk about using that revenue for income. We also forget the Royals do pay into revenue sharing. Now, they don't pay that much, but each team does have to pay into revenue sharing. That's revenue they don't have to pay into revenue sharing. Uh, it's shielded from that because it's non-baseball revenue. Now, of course, the Royals get a bigger check from revenue sharing, but that's that's money they can make without having to share it with other teams. And and we've seen, you're right, that other teams are doing this all over baseball. Atlanta did it. St. Louis has a ballpark village. Oakland, that's one of the big sticking points with the A's and their ballpark uh, efforts is that they want to develop the, the, the waterfront there and have uh, real estate so they can make money for the team. Uh, so it, it, it makes all the sense in the world business-wise. Um, I think there is a little something to John Sherman wanting to do something for, for Kansas City, redirecting. Uh, he's, he's obviously a big downtown booster. And I do think the economic benefits get overstated a little bit, but this is redirecting money that is otherwise spent in the suburbs. Like if I eat, if I'm going to eat out before the game, I'm probably going to eat out, you know, near my house in Prairie Village or you'll eat out in Blue Springs. Well, this will be a chance for you to actually eat somewhere in downtown before the game. Or maybe you hang out at a bar afterwards or maybe you go there just like I said in the off season. Uh, It's a chance to make a little more revenue. Um, so yeah, yeah. And as far as convenience, yeah, it's the K, the K is convenient, but part of that convenience is there's only, there's only 12 to 17,000 people out there on a given night. I, it wasn't really that convenient to get in and out of during the playoffs. I mean, it was, it was a chore to get out of the, the world series game when there's 35, 40,000 people there. Uh, and so, uh, you know, anytime you have that many people, it's going to be a, a hassle. I've, I've been to events and I think, like Matthew said, I've been to events at Truman Sports Complex, or not, uh, Sprint Center downtown, or what, T-Mobile Center downtown, sold out events there, and I've gotten out pretty conveniently. Was, you know, once you know where to go, kind of know, okay, avoid, you know, the main gate, and avoid these main streets, and I can kind of navigate my way around, which 
will be hard at first for a lot of people, but but eventually you'll kind of find your way to get to the game. Um, it's it's really not that hard, and I know that's seventeen thousand people for the arena, but uh, um, you know, like I said, I you know it's 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 anytime you have thirty thousand people, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge, and there, there there's going to be some infrastructure upgrades, traffic upgrades, parking upgrades uh, that go along with it. I'm I'm sure the team is very very sensitive to the fact that people um, are wary of downtown parking, but I, I'm I'm. I'm kind of with Matthew. Uh, yeah, I think for a long time I was kind of like, eh, Kauffman St- Stadium is a gem. Um, you know, I have so many great memories there. And now I'm like, you know what? You can build a great, you can build a gem downtown. Uh, you can, we have the best sports architecture firms in the world. We can build something awesome downtown that has a much better vibe, uh, can bring some more revenue for the team, can can be better for the city. I mean, the east east side of the loop is pretty dead. I mean, downtown is, is pretty great now, I think. It's come a long way. But the east side is still kind of vacant, I think, a lot of the time. So this can be a great way to kind of kick that off. You know, if they put it 18th of Vine, I guess that's a possibility as well. That would kind of help that area as well. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, I think this is an opportunity to do something really transformative for the city and for the team. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm down with it. I think it's great. I'm not worried about parking. I'm not worried about traffic. Um, I think it's going to be great, and I look forward to it. And uh, really look forward to seeing what they do with the team. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the off-season simulation where you, we have fans running teams right after this. Well, long-time followers of our site know that each year at the outset of the off-season, we take 30 fans and have them run each Major League Baseball team under real-world conditions uh, with free agents, negotiating trades with each other. It's kind of a hot stove simulation that takes, over, t- takes place over a few days. Well, we've completed it this week, and Matthew Lamar was running the Royals. Alex Duvall kind of is kind of my fill-in. Uh, he's my pinch hitter when I don't have teams that don't have GMs. Uh, he, he ran the Cubs this year, and I, I work as a player agent kind of negotiating deals and running the operation. So, Matthew, we'll start with you as the GM of the Royals. What was kind of your strategy going into it, and what were you able to accomplish uh, running the Royals? Yeah, so usually, uh, like the past couple of years, my strategy has just been to blow it up and get as many prospects as possible um, because the Royals clearly weren't in a position to, you know, make the next step without some additional, you know, prospect juice. And I think we saw the result of that is they didn't do that and it cost Dayton Moore his job, right? But I think that this year the Royals were kind of in an interesting position in that they've got a lot of young players who might take the next step. So they're not you know, quite in the spot where they should probably go out and spend a lot of money on free agents, um, especially not big free agents, because you don't know how good those players are going to be, you know, if they take a step back, you know, that's a big problem. Like I said earlier, the Royals have some some true issues in the farm system. Um, They've got some good names, but a lot of their other names, you know, from last year, you know, like Asa Lacey, um, you know, the, those players took a step back um, in terms of performance. You know, you, you hope that their sort of newfound minor league pitching development helps um, or, you know, whatever they put together because they haven't put anything together for that yet um, or at least announced it publicly. But I digress. The point being is that the Royals kind of aren't in a position where they need to sell, but they're also not in a position where they need to um, push their chips in. So I set out to explore trades for a couple of players um, while also trying to fill in um, on the pitching side um, of the the, um, 
of the ball uh, with some free agents. So one of the things I was able to do is re-sign Zach Granke. Um, I pursued uh, Corey Kluber. He got a little bit too expensive for me, um, but then I ended. I did end up signing um, Sean Manaya uh, to a two-year deal, and then I was able to add Jack uh, Flaherty from the Cardinals in a, in a deal that I will get to in a minute. You know, Flaherty's had some issues with injuries, but that's three players that you that I brought in that I hoped would lessen the reliance on guys like John Heasley. Um, or, you know, Jackson Coar, guys who might not be ready yet. Um, and then I also explored trades for a couple of players. Those players were MJ Melendez, um, Scott Barlow, and Brady Singer. So the first two kind of make sense, right? Scott Barlow, um, you know, and as, as I've seen Alex tweet about multiple times, I, I know he's he's pretty, uh, pretty gung-ho about this, but, you know, Scott Barlow, considering the price that other relievers are, are you know, are getting paid, um, you know, how much money they're getting paid um, and how much teams are willing to give it up. The Royals are not in a position where they need a guy like Barlow and the return for Barlow, you know, absolutely could be something to kickstart the rebuild. MJ Melendez has been talked about, you know, the Royals have a lot of kind of lefties going on. Um, and these lefties um, include MJ Melendez and Vinny Pasquantino and Nick Prado and the thing about MJ is he's kind of positionless, um, and he had some good stuff happen at the plate. Um, you could see him easily take take a step forward, right? Um, but he doesn't necessarily fit. He could fit in long term, but he's the type of player that you can maybe trade um, and get something back that you didn't have or in a place of... Um, you know, a weakness for the Royals. And then Brady Singer is an interesting case. I really think the Royals should continue consider trading Brady Singer because of a couple of reasons. First of all, Brady Singer is the type of player who can bring back a premier, um, you know, younger player, um, like a truly premier top 100 prospect type of player or multiple top 100 prospects, young players, you know, whatnot. Um, he's the type of premier trade piece that the Royals, you know, don't usually have. And yes, he's good, and I would expect him to be good next year, but we all know what happens to pitchers is that pitchers are more liable to get hurt than other players, and the Royals probably aren't in a position where they need Brady Singer to be really good next year for them to make the playoffs because they're probably not making the playoffs. So I thought, you know, he, this might be a good chance to trade Brady Singer um, and get some stuff in return. So ultimately what I did is um, I worked out a trade um, with the Cardinals, and this is sort of the single biggest thing that happened in the sim i didn't end up trading mj melendez by the way uh, for a number of reasons i just you know nothing materialized and that's kind of the nice thing is i didn't have to trade melendez um, but for the uh for the cardinals i ended up trading trading brady singer and scott barlow for nolan gorman gordon Graceffo, jack flaherty ivan herrera and paul DeJong, who was a salary dump um but that sort of changed the, the aspect of the team a little bit and that I got my third baseman. I know Nolan Gorman hasn't played a lot of third base in the big leagues, but he played a lot in the minor leagues. So I'm penciling him at third base. We'll see if he can stick there. Um, Gordon Grisefo is a uh, very interesting uh, starting pitcher. And what we're going to start starting pitcher is, I think, top five in the Cardinals farm system right now. Uh, Flaherty, when he's healthy, is like a front of the rotation guy. Uh, Ivan Herrera is a very, very well-regarded uh, catching prospect, um, and as Salvador Perez kind of um, phases out of catching over the next couple of years, um, Herrera is the type of guy who can 
end up catching uh, for the Royals and is like a legit catcher, unlike, um, you know, Melendez might not be a legit catcher. So that was kind of like the the big change for me. And I, I'm interested to see when I write this, uh, my write my post, what people think about it. Because um, I didn't do a huge amount of stuff, except I made this very, very big trade that people are either going to love or hate. Uh, it, I'm a huge Nolan Gorman fan. If the Royals added him to Bobby Witt Jr., Nick Prado, Vinny Pascantino, MJ Melendez, that's that's a lineup I can get down with. That's that'd be awesome. Uh, and I, you know, I think Brady Singer's terrific. I think, uh, you know, I'm all for hanging on to him. But man, if you can get a legit you know, all-star caliber hitter, which I think Gorman will be. That'd be awesome. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that'd be, that'd be great if the Royals did that. Uh, Alex, you uh, ran the Cubs. Uh, a little different experience for you. I, the Cubs are kind of a weird spot, and I don't, in real life, I don't know if they're, like, trying to contend or trying to rebuild. What was kind of your strategy going into this? I just started dumping fringe big league talent, traded Ian Happ, traded um, Nico Horner, well, okay, we're going to have to get to this in a minute, but traded Nico Horner and then ended up short stopless. Um, and then w- one thing that I think personally that big league teams don't do enough of is when they probably aren't ready to compete is signing arms pitchers to one-year deals for a little more money than you'd like to pay them. Like I gave Brad Keller and Chad Cool both one year five mil i give mike minor a year and two mil mike clevenger a year and 14 mil like there's no losing in this situation either a you've just spent what 25 million dollars to get a lot of valuable innings out of the way so that your young guys don't have to or b valuable trade assets like would anybody be surprised like really surprised if mike clevenger got somebody a top 100 prospect on a one-year deal this year. Like, he was a really, really, really good pitcher before he had some injury troubles. You sign him to a one-year deal. Yeah, do you really want to pay him $14 million? No. But if he goes out there and pitches like he used to, and all of a sudden you have paid him $10 million, you trade $4 million and get a top 100 prospect back, a top 100 prospect is worth way more than $10 million. You win. I mean, I don't know why teams don't do more of that. I think, you know, adding on years to save some money in the long run is is, is bad business by teams. But whatever. Uh, the Cubs, I I agree with you, Max. They're in a weird spot. So I just started dumping fringe players for younger, more controllable players. And we don't need to get into the to the Cubs roster too much. But one thing I found based on the way that free agency played out is I was trying to get into the shortstop market because the Cubs don't have outside of Nico Horner, a real apparent shortstop. So when I traded Horner, I really thought I'd be able to get one of Trey Turner, Xander Bogarts, or um, Carlos Correa. And then they all ended up getting like $400 million, (laughs) which was just absurd. But, if you're looking at this from a realistic standpoint, this off season, it is going to be knuck and futs. Um, I cannot wait to see what happens in the big <laughs> league off season this year. It is going to be absolutely insane to see what the landscape of this looks like long term. Um, the, the the one thing that, by the way, I would be one 
thousand percent in on if I were the Royals. My, I got Michael Conforto for the Cubs one year, twenty mil. Same principle as like getting Mike Clevenger for one in fourteen. Michael Conforto is a borderline all-star caliber hitter when he's healthy. Getting him under contract for one year where he can solidify right field for you and hopefully bring you back uh, something in a trade, if not signed to a long-term deal, and there's your right fielder moving forward, like would be a really, really good opportunity for the Royals. So without getting too far into the weeds for the, you know, the Cubs themselves, Mike Clevenger, Michael Conforto, I was really happy with how it played out. And if the Royals could get guys like that on those types of deals, I'd be all in. And B, just in general, this offseason is going to be absolutely insane. Yeah, I agree with that. The labor deal is behind us now. Teams are flush with cash. The, the stadiums are full again, or at least there's fans there. Uh, there's you know The TV deals are, are really kicking in now. Teams are going to be spending. And there's some... You know, great shortstops out there you can go get. And, you know, our, our simulation is always a little inflated at the top end with the free agent market. So here's what some of the top guys went for. Aaron Judge, Yankees, 10 years, $500 million, which that's probably a little high on the high end, I think. Trey Turner, 11 years, also to the Yankees for $420 million. So imagine the Yankees spending almost a billion dollars on two players. I don't know if that'll happen. Uh, Xander Bogarts to the Phillies, ten years, four hundred and sixteen million. That's a little seems a little high to me. Uh, I think this one might be close. Carlos Correa to the Braves, which I don't think the Braves are going to go out in on a shortstop, but we'll see. Ten years, four hundred million. Uh, this one kind of surprised me. Dansby Swanson to the Cardinals, eight years, two hundred fifty-six million dollars. Uh, and then Carlos Rodon to the Mets for eight years, two hundred forty million. Uh, probably the best uh, long-term pitcher out there. Uh, but I was surprised he got that much. So yeah, I, Conforto, I think that that was a great value. I thought for to get him for one year, uh, and and if he bounces back, I mean you've got a really flippable asset there that you can get something for. So uh, yeah, I, 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 it's always an interesting exercise. I like seeing some of the trades that teams work out. I, I especially like the trades that kind of seem like they make some sense, like uh, the like, like Matthews Brady Singer trade. Um, I really liked uh, Colin Jekyll, who writes on our site. He ran the Cardinals this year because he's a, he's a Cardinals fan as well, and he made I thought a really good trade, getting Alejandro Kirk from the Blue Jays for uh, who was it? Uh, I'm not blank. Oh, was it? I'm blanking on who he traded now. But anyway, getting Alejandro Kirk from the Blue Jays. Oh, Lars Newtbar and someone else. But um, yeah, so there, there's some really interesting trades out there. I like seeing how creative people can be, and and then honestly, the overall, I, I think I did an analysis once the free agent contracts weren't that far off uh what players get in real life so we'll see maybe we'll see some crazy money to uh the shortstops this year one thing that i uh sort of noticed this year that i like that i had noticed a little bit in the past but not to the extent so like all of the players that i was shopping i did not need to trade because i thought okay i'll hold on to them you know until mid-season I'll trade Scott Barlow. You know, I mean, I mean we're not doing this in midseason, but I'm I'm thinking in terms of the Royals, right? Like, they don't, they don't need to trade Brady Singer. They don't need to trade MJ Melendez. They don't need to trade Scott Barlow, right? They don't need to do any of those things. Um, they can wait and see and um, cash in at midseason or next offseason if they want to cash in at all. So I was in a really comfortable position. And one of the things that I noticed uh, is that other teams – is that depth of minor league talent and depth of like top end minor league talent um, and young talent is so important because what would happen is I would start a dialogue with a, you know, 
like the Rockies or, or, or somebody, you know, with, without like a lot of, you know, top end minor league talent. Um, and I would ask, you know, Hey, what about this player? Would you be comfortable with partnering with this player? Like a top hundred player, like a, you know, 80, you know, 80 or something. Um, and they'd be like, Oh no, we're, we're not trading them. They're, they're too valuable to trade for someone like Scott Barlow. Whereas the teams that I got real traction with in terms of trading were like, okay, yeah, we can part with this guy because we've got four other guys behind him that are, um, you know, pretty good. If you don't have your sort of uh, top end depth going on, and I'm not talking about like Bobby Witt Jr. like real like top 30 overall depth. If you don't have like top, you know, 150 prospects in, in baseball, if you don't at least have a couple of those guys, it makes it really hard to trade for really quality players because you want to hold on to that one or two players who's really, um, you know, a really quality minor leaguer who's like the, the cream of the crop for your team. And whereas that same player in another team might just be another one of your prospects. And so I thought that was very interesting. And the types of teams that I was able to get most traction with were the types of teams that had enough minor league talent such that they could lose a top 100 guy and not feel bad about it. Um, so I thought that was really interesting, and that's really where the Royals want to be, right? Because you think about some of these other teams, um, you know, who trade from their minor league talent pool to get big league talent. Well, they do that because they have other talent coming up the pipeline. So I thought that was just very interesting. No, that's a good point. And that's kind of, kind of a little bit of re- what, what the, was the impetus behind the whole project when I started this, whatever, seven, eight years ago, is that, you know, like, when fans propose trade ideas, it's always like, hey, why don't we get your best player for, like, two crappy prospects we don't like anymore? And it's like, well, that's not actually how trades go down. Let's see, you know, how about we get actual people to, you know, negotiate some of these trades and see what they can come up with. And, and you know, it's, I think you'd probably admit it's a little bit harder than, than we think. And, and you, you have to consider, you know, other organizations' depth and what, what do they have and what can they part with and what are they willing to part with and, uh, think about an overall kind of strategy, and so yeah, it's really I, I'm always really amazed with some of the trades and deals that people are able to come up with, and and the, the teams are able to construct. and And uh, Thursday, I'll have uh, by the time this podcast comes out, there'll be an article uh, up about that shows all the moves and all the signings, and you can see each team's roster and how how they ended up, and kind of judge who did the best and who who did the worst, and uh, see how Matthew did with the Royals and Alex did with the Cubs, and and uh, that's always kind of fun to evaluate. Uh, by the way, yeah, good, really quick, Max, I was. Something that I don't think about often enough is like payroll, and I was just looking like your your recommended budget for the Royals and and for Matthew was, well, what'd you say ninety nine million dollars, and then I'm looking at the Yankees, the recommended budget two hundred and fifty seven million dollars, <laughs> and they wound up at two hundred and sixty nine million, so they went a little over, but I mean you're not talking about you're talking about a player there, yeah. Um, and that's, and, and that's we just take last year's budget and last year's payroll and like add five percent. That's basically how we come up with it, right? And so you're talking about uh, you're talking about a team whose yearly payroll is four, not four times, like almost three times higher than the Royals. It's like how are how are the Royals supposed to compete if they're legitimately thinking we're going to run out a ninety nine million dollar payroll on a semi regular basis? It's just insane where baseball's gotten with this, especially with teams like the Mets. I'm looking $292 million, $318 million against the cap. It's just <laughs> insane what baseball's become in terms of the haves and the have-nots. And 
it made me realize, I think for the first time this offseason, we're going to get a salary cap at some point, and we're going to get more revenue sharing. And baseball has one of two options. They can develop a model that is more like football, or they can die. It's not going to last in the way that it is at the moment, I don't think. Not saying that it's going to become full-blown football, the NFL model, but it's got to get closer. This just isn't going to work for, for too much longer. I think it actually is going to be the opposite way. I think they're, 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 really? Yeah, I think just the, the fact that teams are getting into the, this non-baseball revenue just makes it more likely that, uh, that, that they're – as long as the Royals can make money and not have to necessarily field a, you know, a high payroll to do so. So <laughs> it's probably more incentive for them not to spend money on the, team, on the team. I mean, and you see teams like the Rays and the Guardians that are obviously pretty successful without – spending money so there's there's kind of a template out there and i think you'll see more i think you could see like a team like the twins who do, do actually spend quite a bit for a smaller market team say like look we're spending you know the median payroll why are we doing that we should be spending more like the rays you know and because the twins used to be one of the cheapest organizations out there and they've kind of uh, kind of uh you know spent more and they haven't really gotten you know, have they had playoff success? No. So I don't know. I, 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 I would like to believe that, that we'd get a little more equity in the game, but I, I don't see it coming anytime soon. It certainly didn't seem like it was much of a, um, a talking point at all during the last round of negotiations. And, and of course we won't see another negotiation for a couple more years, but uh, we'll see. I don't know. Maybe that'll be John Sherman's next project after he gets a downtown stadium. Well, let's wrap things up with our Royals review reviews. Uh, Matthew, why don't you uh, start off this week? Yeah, so um, I'm very excited uh, to watch uh, pretty soon uh, season three of Mythic Quest. Um, so Mythic Quest in the um, sort of pantheon of TV shows, I think maybe kind of goes under the radar a little bit, not the least of which because it's on Apple TV Plus, <laughs> um, which is like way down the list of, of streaming services. But um, Mythic Quest is, is one of my favorite shows over the last few years. Um, it is made by... Um, a couple of guys from the Always Sunny in Philadelphia team, including Charlie Day and uh, Rob McElhenney. And it is about a, a video game studio. Um, and they're, um, the process of them creating um, and maintaining the MMORPG Mythic Quest, the, it, which does not exist in real life. It's, you know, this fake uh, RPG in, in the game, you know, a multiplayer, massively multiplayer game. Um, and it's just really funny. And um, all the characters are like delightfully over the top in like reasonable ways. Like the the lead, um, like creative designer of the studio is, is played by uh, Mac Lenny. Um, and he's just like, uh, you know, just kind of, unhinged in this like egotistical way but like you can see elements of like real bosses that you've had in him um and it has you know a, a couple of wonderful other cast members um and it's just really funny it's really good um and i'm excited to start season three i haven't watched season three yet it just came out and it's i guess it's coming out weekly so we're gonna wait until a couple of episodes come out but um it's uh really high up on my list of shows that you probably aren't watching that you probably should watch because even if you're not a video game fan, um, you're going to enjoy it. And even if you're, if you are a video game fan, it's just going to be that much more enjoyable. But like I said, you know, um, if you're a fan of always sunny, uh, in Philadelphia, um, 
this is going to be a show for you because it has a lot of the same creative team behind it. Uh, Rob McElhenney is, is hilarious, and and his 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 weight gain and loss for Elway Sunday should have earned him like an Emmy or something because that was uh, incredible. But yeah, he's a funny guy, and uh, yeah, I, I've heard a lot of good things about that show, so I'll have to check it out. Alex, uh, what do you have for us this week? My wife and I just finished season four of The Sinner on Netflix. It is one of the best TV shows I've ever seen. It is Bill Pullman plays a detective named Harry Ambrose, and he is the sinner, right? So in season one, like, so I won't give any spoilers, but in season one, like the opening scene, this this woman is on a beach at the lake. Uh, she hears music and this guy is like wrestling with his girlfriend and she goes into a trance, runs over and stabs him to death. Um, like season four, he, he winds up on an Island, uh, in Maine. He meets this, this young lady. And that night he like happens to see her walking around. And this is again, like the opening scene of season four, he follows her to a cliff and, and kind of a trigger warning here. She, she, she jumps off of it and he's like, what the hell? And so the whole season is about what on earth just happened that this girl just, just did this. And so, um, it is, but like, like I said, he is the center. And so the story of the seasons follows this detective and all of the issues he's working through himself while he tries to uncover what happens to these people. And one of the things that I hate in, in shows and movies is predictability like the classic, like, oh, here's the plot, and you can guess it from, like, the first episode. Season one and four specifically of The Center, I had, like, 50 different theories about what was going to happen each episode because you, it keeps you on your toes. It is so suspenseful, um, and it's not super actiony. There's not a ton of action, although there is some, but the suspense, like, if you love a good plot twist, if you love good character development and just mind blowing endings. It is one of the best shows I've ever seen. Bill Pullman, I feel like is one of the more underrated American actors, like the last 20 years, like just, he's not super, you know, noticeable, I guess, but he's just kind of like solid in every performance he does and always seems to pick good projects to do. So, uh, yeah, that, that sounds really, really interesting. And I'll, I'll check that out as well. So, uh, was it the center? Is that what it's called? The Netflix you said? Yep, the center. All right. Well, I don't have anything this week. I have been just so busy with stuff, uh, baseball and non-baseball, real life stuff. Uh, but I appreciate the good recommendations. I will, if I w- would recommend something, uh, you know, I know Alex, you're not uh, writing regularly at Royals Farm Report anymore, but do follow Alex on Twitter at Royals Farm. Uh, still have great takes on the Royals and other stuff around baseball, especially prospects. I like that you're still keeping an eye on prospects because I rely on your uh, expertise for a lot of these players. Uh, So do check that out. And of course, check out uh, Matthew's work as well uh, on Twitter and on our site at Royals Review. So uh, thanks again for Matthew and Alex for being on. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in and we'll talk to you all next time.